What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. Don't know the number off the top of my head. I think it's like 351 or something. Um, 352 maybe. Sat down with Preston Byrne, resident, uh, legal, not counsel. He's not my lawyer. When we want to get a, a legal perspective on the things going on in the world of Bitcoin, we tap Preston on the shoulder and say, hey, what the hell's going on? We talked a lot about the tornado cash. Um, debacle that's going on right now uh, and the nature of Bitcoin as property. Very interesting things going on over in England in terms of defining Bitcoin as a, as a new type of property. So this was a fascinating conversation. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. It was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. They're currently running a promotion until September 8th, Okay, less than a month to take advantage of this. We're draining the exchanges. Get your Bitcoin off the exchanges and into a two or three multi-sig vault that Unchained is providing, right? The deal is $250. They're negging the $1,000 rebate and dropping it down to $250 uh, to set up a vault using their concierge service. Uh, if you use the code TFTC, you're going to get $50 off. So that'll bring it down to $200. Uh, and you basically set up a, uh, a consultation with their concierge team. They're going to get you comfortable with multi-sig in general, their vault product specifically, which is a two or three multi-sig in which you hold two keys, Unchained holds one. You always have control over your Bitcoin as long as you have those two keys. Uh, and yeah, uh, this is a product that I use. I'm very happy with it. Uh, it gives me uh, a very big sense of calm and peace of mind because I know that my uh, my there's no single points of failure in my custody model. Risk is distributed. Uh, this is also being offered for their IRA service as well. So if you want to transition your IRA into a Bitcoin IRA, Unchained provides that. And you can also hold your own keys to your IRA as well using their 2 or 3 multi-sig vault. So go check all this out at unchained.com slash concierge. Again, tell them that or use the promo code TFTC for $50 off the $250 package. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains. Incredible team. Slush pool will no longer be slush pool at the end of the month. It's going to be brains pool. The brains team creates the tools that you need to be a better miner. Brains OS plus firmware is one of those tools. It helps you idiot proof your mining operation. If you have an ASIC that is compatible with brains OS plus firmware and you're not using it, you're leaving sats on the table. And as we know here, only idiots leave sats on the table. Don't leave sats on the table. Download brains OS plus firmware. Go to brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com to check out the firmware. You can download it there. They also have Brains Insights, which is an incredible uh, data repository. It gives you the state of the mining industry. They have calculators for profitability and cost, all that good stuff. Go to brains.com to check it all out. B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. This is also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer lending platform. No KYC, no AML, peer-to-peer. You put Bitcoin up, in a multi-sig escrow account, you hold one key, your counterparty in the loan holds one key, and HODL HODL holds the third key, okay? Uh, this allows you not to control the funds throughout the duration alone. Obviously, that would not uh, be a good model, but since you have one key in that two or three multi-sig quorum, you have visibility into the escrow wallet so that you know that your sats are not being rehypothecated. You put sats in the escrow account, you get stable coins in return, and as long as you're paying back that loan plus the interest associated with it, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Again, no KYC, no AML, peer-to-peer 
lend.hodlehodl.com, lend.hodlehodl.com. This rip is also brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Are you looking to mine? Are you looking to mine at home? Are you looking to mine at the oil field? Are you looking to mine uh, behind the meter at a utility company? Upstream Data is here building the products that you need. If you're an at-home miner, they have the black box. You, you buy the black box, you put your miners in it, you shut the black box, and you, you, you barely hear anything. Miners are notoriously loud. Steve Barber and crew built the black box to solve this noise problem. People complaining, oh, my HOA is not liking the noise coming from my miners. Well, what you do is you buy a black box, you put the miners in it, you shut the box, and your HOA buzzes off. Buzz off. Buzz off. If you use the code FREAKS, you're going to get 5% off a black box. They're also creating bundles. They sell ASICs as well. So if you want to get a black box and ASICs, Upstream Data is selling those bundles. And then beyond that, the more heavy-duty stuff, uh, they have hash shots. I'm a customer of the hash shot, happy user of the hash shot. I have a 50-kilowatt hash shot that's using uh, natural gas from a strand of natural gas well to mine Bitcoin. They sell the hut uh, and a generator to come with it. Uh, and these generators are, are form-fit for Bitcoin mining. These are Bitcoin miners. They know what you're going to need as a miner. They make their generators to mine specifically. Uh, I have a 50 kilowatt hash shut. They have a 900 kilowatt hash shut. They have a 180 kilowatt hash shut. If you're in the oil and gas industry or if you're a utility company with excess electricity and you're looking to diversify into Bitcoin mining, Upstream Data is the team for you. Their products are incredible. I'm a happy user. Go to upstreamdata.ca and tell them that TFTC sent you. If you're going to get a hash shut, go to shop.upstreamdata.ca to pick up a black box. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth. Okay, CrowdHealth is here to help you become a better sovereign individual. The health insurance agency is notoriously opaque, it's notoriously expensive, and it's notoriously subpar delivering quality healthcare. What CrowdHealth is doing is they're they're not a health insurance company, but they're they've figured out a way to create a better healthcare experience for end users. What you do is you pay a monthly fee that goes into a dedicated account uh, and you build that account up. And if you ever go uh, and need to access healthcare, you need to go to the doctors. What you do is you tell health, uh, Crowd Health, hey, I'm going to the doctor. You go to the doctor, you get the bill, you give it to Crowd Health. So they go back to the doctor, they negotiate the prices down so that you get cheaper, higher quality healthcare. And then they have advocates, one on one advocates, Crowd Health advocates that are working with you to make sure that you're getting the best quality care that you can. I'm a happy Crowd Health. Uh, customer, uh, user, uh, me and my family are on Crowd Health. What you do is if you have a medical expense, you pay the first $500 and then uh, your bill gets sent out to the Crowd Health community and you crowdfund your health expenses. They've had 100% of their medical bills paid on the Crowd Health platform. Uh, and they have a Bitcoin aspect to it too. They have a Bitcoin community where your monthly payment, a portion of that will go into Bitcoin to be held alongside the dollars in your account. So if you're naturally long Bitcoin, uh, it's a good way to speculative attack your your future healthcare cost. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC uh, to check out our landing page. If you do sign up for CrowdHealth, use the code TFTC at checkout when you sign up and you're going to get $99 a month for the first six months uh, that you're on the platform. That's a very significant discount. So use the code TFTC. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Uh, join me and my family in the Bitcoin community. Enjoy this Red Freaks. Thank you. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. 
If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Mr. Byrne, uh, you're still not my lawyer, right? Not yet, no. I mean, I could be if you wanted to. I'm, I'm reassuringly expensive. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that's you know, up, up to you. I'm, I'm always here when you need me. Well, thank you. Uh, I need you not for personal law advice, but I think uh, everything that's going on this week in the world of uh, cryptocurrency, particularly as it pertains to tornado cash, is very interesting and getting a legal perspective on everything that's going on is uh, something that the audience is probably looking for. So yeah, Tornado Cash, an open source smart contract on Ethereum that allows people transacting on the Ethereum blockchain with many different tokens to attain some semblance of privacy was sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. Uh, the GitHub page of the project was pulled. A developer was arrested this morning and there are a bunch of people wondering what that is this a, a major attack on privacy on open source software on on freedom in the digital age how are, how are you reading everything that's going on with tornado cash um i mean this is really a story about and like no disrespect to ethereum they showed up later than, than bitcoin did um so it's this is really a story of a community that was not within uh, you know, the crosshairs of law enforcement falling within the crosshairs of law enforcement for the first time and being surprised. Um, so you know, Tornado Cash is, a, is, a, is an Ethereum mixer, right? Um, and what it does is it allows people to spend Ether to a particular contract address on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, they get a hash, which proves how much, uh, you know, how much Ether they put in. Uh, when they do that, and then they can call that contract and withdraw an equivalent amount of ether, less fees, uh, you know, at a later time. Uh, you know, the problem with that vis-a-vis -vis Bitcoin, right, is that Ethereum uses a completely different transaction model than Bitcoin does. Uh, chiefly, it uses something called the account-based model, where basically each address has a has a balance associated with it, rather than Bitcoin, which uses the UTXO model, which is where you can trace every transaction input back to the Coinbase transaction on the chain whence it originated. So basically, from a legal standpoint, when you look at that, we call that commingling, right? It's when you take some bad assets, tainted assets, and you pool them together with good assets, untainted assets. Um, and so apparently, allegedly, a lot of the Tornado Cash's uh, system's assets uh, derive from places like Iran and North Korea, which are very, very heavily sanctioned, sanctioned up the wazoo, one might say. And um, and so as a consequence, the Tornado Cash contract was sanctioned uh, by the Treasury, uh, and uh, and that with the consequence, basically, the contract is rendered unusable for any lawful use uh, by an American citizen or anyone who wants to do business with anyone who does business with American citizens. Um, so it's it's a new approach to normally if you had a Bitcoin mixer, right? That would be a centralized service because Bitcoin smart contracts don't really do what Ethereum smart contracts do just by nature of their design, right? So it's not the kind of thing where you would have all that logic living 
on-chain. So what you did is you had people who ran the services off-chain and they took a fee uh, for providing those services. And people who do that tend to get arrested uh, and they tend to go to prison for operating a uh, unlicensed money transmitting business and money laundering, right? So Ethereum, I think people think it's a little bit different because they said, well, we pushed that functionality out onto the chain. So therefore we've got nothing more to do with it. It's not our, not our problem. Um, the issue with that is that with any decentralized, you know, inverted commas or quotation marks for Americans and Canadians, um, you know, with any decentralized service, um, it's, there are always going to be centralized pieces, right? There's always something, there's some nexus with the real world that, uh, because people can't resist the temptation to, to mess with it. So in Tornado Cash's case, there was a Discord server, right? There were governance proposals. There was a token. There was all of this stuff around it where people were interacting and talking to the protocol. And that's where you get into trouble, right? And so it's, if you're, let's say, let's run a couple of hypotheticals for just for the sake of, of example. So let's say Bobby, you know, let's call him Dave. Dave, developer Dave, writes the Tornado Cash code. It's a couple of years ago, right? And he publishes it to his GitHub account. And um, excuse me, I just sorry, my phone just went off. So he publishes that code to his GitHub account and uh, and just leaves it there, right? In the United States, there's no liability for that. You can publish whatever code you want; it's protected by the First Amendment. And so we see a lot of people complaining, right? That oh my God, there are First Amendment issues here. Yes, there are First Amendment issues here if liability is sought to be imposed with respect to the publishing of code on GitHub. So then developer Dave says, okay, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to go publish this code on the internet. I'm going to go push it to Ethereum. Um, and when he does that, right, at the moment, none, like, it's just it's an experiment, right? Let's say, he says, this is a way I can go push this. Query whether at that initial moment, he's actually committed a crime, right? Because he's not money laundering. He's not conspiring to launder money. Uh, he's not doing anything to promote money laundering. He's just saying, I want this contract to live on chain. You can make an argument that there's some criminal liability there, you know, maybe, but you, know, it, you can go either way. It depends on the facts. Now let's fast forward three years, right? And you've got something like Tornado Cash where it's laundering $10 billion of Ether a year through the contract, much of it coming from places like North Korea. Um, and you've been notified by Treasury that the account is sanctioned and you're still running a Discord server and managing governance proposals for it, you got a problem, right? Like there's there's no escaping that. You know that the US government has issues with this. You know, or should know that money laundering is taking place using it. And that notwithstanding, you're still attempting to manage the contract and you're attempting, right, to facilitate further violations of our money laundering laws, right, and our sanctions rules at this point. So once you have all of that, right, this this stage of the game where you know you've got huge sums of money being laundered through these these uh, these things, you know, yes, the system's decentralized; it lives on a blockchain somewhere. However, you know, your conduct in relation to that system—if there's something which is that much of a live wire—you've got to really ask yourself, like, what am I doing trying to promote this thing, right? Because we have rules around criminal conspiracies, we have rules around aiding and abetting. Um, and, uh, and, and, and like, or liquidity providers, right. For the system who are providing vast pools of liquidity and they're getting paid in tokens as a result. Um, this is the kind of stuff that can give rise to significant criminal liability. Um, and so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where we are. So the Ethereum community is discovering this for the first time today. Uh, and they're very surprised because people said, well, no, it's decentralized. It lives on the chain. It's like, okay, fine. Yeah. Yeah. It did live on the chain. 
but you guys are interacting with it. And there are rules around sanctions and money laundering, which apply here that, that you guys just aren't paying a whole lot of attention to. So that, that's the story with Tornado Cash. It's a mic Ethereum mixer that they thought was decentralized that lived on the blockchain. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of not particularly decentralized things which happen in the periphery of that smart contract. And that appears to be where the government is uh, is starting to sink its uh, sink its teeth in. So was this action by the Treasury to sanction essentially a smart contract tornado in Tornado Cash? Is that a precedent that was just set? Sanctioning code instead of an individual or a company? I mean, they're sanctioning an entity, right? That's the that's the theory. And I've seen some. I'm not an expert on on sanctions by any stretch of the imagination. But I've seen some people say, well, they're sanctioning code. Um, from a commercial law standpoint, that's one argument you could make. Uh, another argument you could make is you could say, listen, they're sanctioning an entity. That entity is some type of unincorporated association made up or partnership, general partnership of the participants in the tornado cash system. And so what they're sanctioning really is them, right? And all of the assets which are being managed by that system. So Tornado Cash has you know, its ordinary users. It has people who liquidity mine by providing pools of liquidity uh, which or anonymity mine, right? Which allows people to, it, it creates more inputs uh, to obfuscate the origin of, uh, or rather the destination of funds and origin of funds that have gone into the contract. So that's that kind of activity, you could argue, right? That it's a general partnership. I think that's that would be what I would argue if I had to. Um, so it's not really that the code is being sanctioned, the business is being sanctioned, right? The Tornado Cash enterprise uh, is being sanctioned. Yeah, that's some of the rumblings I've heard on Twitter. In the, I mean, it's only been a couple hours since the announcement of the Tornado Cash developer being arrested in the Netherlands. Uh, many are speculating that, oh, he's, he's getting arrested for writing the code that enabled the smart contract. But others are saying, hey, it's probably not that he just simply wrote the code and, and pushed it live, but there is a fee associated for coordinating these actions. And since he's getting paid, or the people involved in Tornado Cash are getting paid via fees for coordinating, that is sort of the, the smoking gun that is allowing them to go after them and arrest them. Well, I mean, so the, I don't know what are, he was, I know he was arrested in the Netherlands. I don't know what he was arrested under. It might be, for example, under a domestic violation of Dutch law. Uh, it might be under a violation of US law and they're going to seek to extradite him to the United States. So um, let's see, we're going to just pull up AIPA here, which is not something that Speedy Gonzalez says, but is in fact the Emergency Powers, Economic Powers Act that, uh, that <laughs> sorry, that was a bad joke. But uh, it's the Emergency <laughs> Economic Powers Act, which allows uh, the president to sanction stuff. So if we look at 50 U.S. Code 1705, uh, it says, so let's assume Tornado Cash gets sanctioned, right? Um, it, section, you know, sub A, it shall be unlawful for a person to violate, attempt to violate, conspire to violate, or cause a violation of any license order, regulation, or prohibition issued under this chapter. And a person who willfully commits, willfully attempts to commit, or willfully conspires to commit, or aids and abets in the commission of uh, such an unlawful act, uh, upon conviction, shall be fined not more than a million bucks, uh, or imprisoned for not more than 20 years, or both, right? So, like, when sanctions are involved, like, it's all hands on deck. Like, you really got to steer very, very far away from 
doing business with North Korea or Iran, right? Or Russia when Russia is sanctioned under EPA, right? So, so like there's a crime. There are other crimes, right? That may have been committed. So for ex- the most obvious one is that there's money laundering, right? And so people who operate uh, or who assist in the uh, provision of, of a money laundering service um, can either be liable as, if my recollection is correct, they can be reliable, they, they can be uh, held liable as principals because the statute, memory serves, says that a person who operates all or part of an unlicensed money transmitting business um, is, you know, potentially liable. I think it's 18 U.S. 1960. Let's see if we, we'll find out. Yep. Boom. All right. Cool. So I can, I've memorized all my statutes on the fly. You know, you, your podcast listeners know that this particular guest knows what he's talking about. So 18 U.S. 1960, uh, whoever knowingly conducts, controls, manages, supervises, directs, or owns all or part of an unlicensed money transmitting business shall be fined in accordance with this title or prison not more than five years. So conducts, controls, manages, supervises, directs, or owns. That's pretty broad, right? And so supervises, manages, conducts, like think about it. Like if you're sitting there managing governance proposals to update a protocol that facilitates unlicensed money laundering, guess or unlicensed money transmission and money laundering, guess what? Like you've just tripped that particular wire on the unlicensed money transmitting statute. So that's something which might be, might, might happen. Um, they may also have a conspiracy to commit money laundering charge, right? If they were knowingly doing this stuff, knowing that money laundering were taking place. So that's like, this is the kind of stuff, these are the kind of lo- rules that govern how we transact with one another. In Bitcoin land, we would really only see centralized services getting tripped by these rules because Bitcoin doesn't have the functionality, right? By design, this is not like a shortfall. This is a feature, not a bug. Bitcoin doesn't have the functionality that Ethereum has with regard to certain DeFi contracts. So Ethereum said, well, we pushed it all onto the chain, except they didn't push it all onto the chain, right? It would be one thing if the smart contract just lived there and nobody talked to it ever again. They have governance protocols. They have a side token. They had a Discord. They had a medium. So all of that stuff right, is promoting the use of this unlawful thing by, in, or unlawful in the United States thing. And that's, that's probably where they're going to sink their hooks in in terms of uh, you know, assessing uh, and charging uh, these developers with criminal liability. Hmm. And so you mentioned in the past centralized Bitcoin mixers where you have a very uh, off, you have an off-chain process where somebody sends Bitcoin to this third party, and then they send you somebody else's Bitcoin uh, to help break your uh, history on chain. They've been uh, taken down and their operators arrested. And I guess that's a lingering question in many people's minds now. What about these these coin join implementations like Whirlpool or Wasabi? Uh, Is there, since there's coordinators involved, with uh, those technologies, could something like the sanctions that have been levied on Tornado Cash be brought to to those coin join services? Yeah, to be blunt, yes. Um, and and in addition to that, you don't really you don't need the sanctions rule to bring criminal charges against someone for for assisting in the operation of a money laundering business. Tornado Cash just happened to be, you know, it's currently the hottest service in the world. And by hot, you know, I don't mean like hot as in cool. I mean, hot as in heat, 
right? So like, so like you really like the heat, the heat is on and, um, and, uh, and anyone having anything to do with tornado cash right now should probably lawyer up, um, my, my two cents, but basically tornado cash was clearly the biggest problem, uh, of all of those, uh, all of those, uh, services. And so it attracted the most attention and that's the one that they're focusing on. But in principle, yes, if you're operating or facilitating, right. Money laundering and the anon- anonymizing of transactions, regardless of the chain, regardless of the method, you know, you are taking other people, you are transacting with people who have broken the law or are laundering the proceeds of crime, and you are facilitating those transactions, then you've got something to worry about. Heavy shit. Well, I guess this gets into the whole concept of money laundering. Like, is a lot of people would point to money laundering and say it's really an opaque type of uh, action or the definition of money laundering is very opaque. It's not... Um, it all stems from the Bank Secrecy Act, which many people would argue is a, a huge infringement on individual privacy at the end of the day. Uh, and it, it seems that using money laundering, the Bank Secrecy Act, to levy sanctions and shut down these services is hurting overall privacy at the end of the day when 99% of people on the planet aren't committing crimes and they simply want to attain privacy on these blockchains like is is money laundering in a, an actual crime that uh, deserves thrusting all these privacy prohibiting um, laws on individuals globally so uh, yes uh, to, i don't think i don't think you're ever gonna there are a lot of people who say money laundering is a victimless crime or it's a crime which you know is is, is you know, harmless and this and that money laundering has a specific definition it's very clear as to what it is money laundering is transacting right with the proceeds of crime right in order to either violate the law or conceal the origin of the funds in question Right. So proceeds of crime are required. So for actual money laundering, I have very little to zero sympathy for people who carry it out. Right. Like if you if you are laundering money, it means you've broken the law somewhere somewhere else along the chain. There's a difference between that, however. Right. And saying that your privacy should be banned. I think privacy is good. Right. I think financial privacy is important. And people are currently rinsing me on Twitter. Because I, I, I dared to, to speak about Ether in a negative way this morning or Tornado Cash and say, well, maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to use this thing to launder money. And they're like, well, don't you care about financial privacy? Yeah, I do care about financial privacy. But do you need to commingle your money with the North Koreans to get it? No, like come up with a this is like a, these are crypto systems. Come up with better crypto that allows people to transact with one another secretly in such a way that they don't transact with the North Koreans. Right. In this instance, what's happening with Tornado Cash is that there is a smart contract which sits on a giant pool of liquidity. People mix all their liquidity together and then they withdraw and they have a withdrawal receipt, which is a hash, which basically allows them to pull the funds out, less fees, and that goes into their wallet. But those fees originated right from a variety of different sources, including unlawful ones, which means that when you use it, you're facilitating the unlawful use of that facility by bad actors like North Korea. And people are like, well, it's North Korea. It's a hermit kingdom. It's not so bad. North Korea sucks. It's the worst country ever. Um, they enslave people in, and murder them in, in labor camps all over the country. There's no freedom of any description. They starve people routinely. They develop nuclear weapons and threaten their neighbors. Uh, there's nothing redeeming about North Korea. Like, they, like if it were a liberal democracy that was getting bullied 
you know, by the United States, that would be one thing. It's not. It's a Stalinist dictatorship (laughs) that is absolutely brutal to everyone in it and has no right to exist. So as in its current form, it has a right to exist as a liberal democracy, which hopefully one day it will be. So that from that standpoint, like people are, you are, if you are using something like tornado cash, you are facilitating that. There are methods right out there. I'm, I'm not by any means an expert, but you know, in that particular, you know, area of cryptography, but there are people working on types of proofs and types of transactions and types of blockchains that conceal the nature of a transaction without requiring people to transact with bad people, right? So, but a mixer is a very specific thing. It's saying, listen, we're going to use this address on the blockchain or this service on the blockchain where you're going to put money in and you're going to take different money out, but it's going to be in equivalent amounts, right? So come up with some cryptography that allows people to transact with one another privately, some type of homomorphic encryption where people don't have to reveal their public keys to the world and they only have to reveal them to each other, right? Come up with that. And I don't have any issue with that. Right. But if you're talking about a mixing service as being the final, you know, the, the final answer here, uh, I just don't think that the, it's not viable. It's going to be regulated forever. There's no chance that it's ever not going to be regulated. And ultimately, you're facilitating bad actors every time that you use it. Right. So there's a difference between a bad actor using a protocol and you doing a transaction with a bad actor. And I think that's a, a meaningful distinction that, uh, that people aren't clear enough about. Yeah. Well, with tornado cash specifically so uh, i'm sure you saw that there was uh some joker like character just started spamming um all the documents directly from toward the tornado cash contract brian armstrong shaquille o'neal jimmy fallon one of the paul brothers like what what does that mean for those individuals who now have uh Ether linked to Tornado Cash in their wallets. Uh, I think they need to apply to OFAC for a license uh, to to access the money in their wallets. So the, if if it were if this were on Bitcoin, um, what I would do is I would exclude the UTXOs from the wallet and say, you know, we've excluded these UTXOs from the wallet, and therefore we're not going to transact with them. Right. So that that is straightforward. You know, it's not straightforward to do for your average user, but it's something which can be done. Right. There would be a transaction output going to that address. You could wall off those outputs and just never touch them. Right. With Ethereum, you can't because it's an account based model. So once the balance is credited to your account, your funds and the funds which are subject to the sanctions have been commingled. So essentially, the point one, if if these guys really in practice, I suspect the compliance is going to be pretty low. But formally, they sh- they I think they probably have transacted with Tornado Cash, and I think as such, they need to go report to OFAC the balances in their wallet, which are attributable to that, uh, and uh, and it, in order to access it, I suspect they need a license. Uh, how many people actually do that? I don't know, but that's that's TBD. It's it's but like this is how strict sanction stuff is. Um, so that that that's my hunch. Yeah. Ah. Uh. Harry Times it's a mess. here. It's a, it's it is a, mess, a mess, but like, but like the you know I I, I posted on Twitter the other day. So I've I've posted some really like I posted some stuff that's making me really unpopular this week, which is a sign that either you're over the target or that you need to spend more time outside. You know, I'm not, not sure which one it is, but um, so I, I said on Twitter earlier in the week when Tornado Cash first got taken down, I said, listen, what happens if someone starts withdrawing to you know the .eth crowd and starts putting stuff in their wallets? Like they're going to have a 
regulatory problem. And sure enough, that's what people did. So I suspect what, what will wind up happening is that wallets will eventually have some type of, there'll be like a smart contract based wallet where the wallet has the ability to reject an incoming transaction. And this wouldn't be blockchain level censorship. It would basically just be, be like an escrow contract on the Ethereum blockchain, right? So some wallet will have a smart contract associated with it. And you'll say, listen, this address follows the logic of this wallet, meaning that I'm not going to accept any inbound transfers um, from just anybody, but rather I'm going to have to provide a little bit of data on chain to indicate that I consent to the inbound transfer. So I think that that will probably wind up happening in future, uh, and it'll probably wind up happening on layer two rather than layer one. Um, but that's that's my my hunch, right, is that people are going to need to, um, to are frankly going to need to block people from depositing sanctioned funds in their wallets. Like that's a feature which has to happen. So that's, um, or they'll wind up running decentralized custodians, which would be bad. Um, so people were like, oh, you don't like decentralization. I was like, no, it's not that I don't like decentralization. It's just that like, this is clearly a, exactly what's going to happen now that the sanction, you know, these sanctions have been put in place. Someone's going to challenge the sanctions or engage in civil disobedience by trolling everyone influential in crypto by depositing sanctioned funds in their wallet. And that's exactly what happened. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, we, it's a challenge. And I think there, there are design challenges around privacy and there are design challenges around, you know, regulatory compliant software design, right? So like, how do you build software that doesn't expose your users to liability, um, you know, from the feds? Like, how do you design around it? And you can, and it can be done, but you have to think about the problem. And, you know, at the moment on Twitter, people aren't thinking about the problem, right? What they're doing is they're freaking out about the problem. And they're jumping on top of anybody who says, hey, hold on a second, maybe you should design something a little bit differently rather than you know, there's no introspection. People are just pissed off that the government got up in their grill. And um, it's just not a particularly productive way to uh, to do business or to, to structure your legal affairs. Yeah, uh, no, it is. I mean, because that seems like a slippery slope. First, it's, hey, that's right. Wallet software that rejects transactions coming from sanctioned addresses or projects uh smart contracts on chain but then it's if you can do that what's to stop them from saying all right um since we have this account-based model we can see how everybody's transacting um we've noticed that developer dave has has bought too much meat this week and so uh, if he's trying to pay you um, for food or something like that, you, you have to reject his transaction because his uh, his carbon uh, allowance is is over for the week. Like, so yeah, I, like- I, I think if I think if people are using Bitcoin to buy their their weekly groceries, we live in a very different world than uh, than than the one we live in now. So I suspect that if it gets to that point, um, the the state probably isn't in the same condition that it is now. Uh, and and likely, in fact, as law enforcement capabilities have deteriorated considerably, so that's just my hunch. I mean, talking you know to Bitcoin people about you know what the future trajectory is. If we're all using Bitcoin to to buy our weekly purchases, uh, you know, get our daily bread and that kind of stuff, I suspect that that we live in a very different world from a regulatory standpoint than the one we live in now. Is that the world you want to live in? I don't know. I have no idea what the what the unintended consequences of the monster that we're currently in the process of creating are. Uh, you know, they may be good, they may be bad, they may be neither. And thinking, you know, thinking will will render it good or bad in the eyes of the beholder. But you know, we're 
we're on the path. And I think probably in our lifetimes, we're going to see the end result. So, but I, I don't know what, I don't know what that end result will be. If I did, uh, you know, I, I would have, uh, I would have bought more ether right back in 2014 when it was nice and cheap and been on an Island in Tahiti, you know, sitting there shit posting about tornado cash and how awful it is that the U S government, uh, you know, has, has cracked down on it instead of sitting here as I do a working man and an analyst who understands the issues, uh, and has to, has to earn his salary by actually, you know, working and practicing law. So I think, which I honestly, as between like being a really pretty crypto literate corporate lawyer and being an ether millionaire, well, I'll take a lawyer any day. Um, (laughs) if I'm going to be a crypto millionaire, like make it Bitcoin or something else, but not Ethereum this week is pretty cringe. So I'm glad I'm not part of that uh, chorus. You're not excited for the merge. The merge is coming. Yeah. The merge. I'm, I'm sure it's coming. It's been coming for four years now. And I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure it will happen on schedule and on time, exactly as exactly as proposed. Well, Vitalik came out this morning and said uh, September fifteenth. They they set the difficulty limit, and it's it's going to happen on September fifteenth. This time, how, how do, that's that's really decentralized. Who knew code could be so specific? Um, right. <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean that's we live in a we live in a weird world. It's interesting to see. It's it's actually better like as you know as a lawyer to be in this world seeing where they say that when you've got competition right if you're running a startup and you've got competitors it's a validation of your thesis whereas if no one's competing with you you have a problem because maybe you're not over the target like they're starting to regulate this stuff it's everywhere right crypto is everywhere and it's growing very very quickly i think they're probably behind the curve in terms of understanding how big it is and how you know how much they've got to actually regulate so from, from the standpoint of a crypto user and sort of crypto, you know, I don't know, I guess I've been around now for seven or eight years in crypto, maybe a little longer. Um, so it's nice to see because it means we've made it. Like the powers are paying attention to it, uh, which means it's, it's big, right? And so that, that to me is, is actually kind of oddly reassuring because uh, it tells me that, uh, you know, the, the thing which I've decided to dedicate my life to, in terms of my professional life at least, uh, was uh, is going somewhere, right? In 2014, 2015, 2016, that was not clear, right? It was not by no means clear that this was going to happen back then. And now it's so big that it's clear that it's not going to stop. Yeah. No, no, it's a very, I mean, the timing of the momentum that Bitcoin uh, is gaining right now uh, in parallel with the, uh, the disdain for the state, particularly the federal government, is very interesting. I mean, uh, you mentioned if if we're transacting in Bitcoin to buy our our, our groceries uh, on a day to day basis, the regulatory environment has significantly changed. The state has become significantly weaker, and it does seem like since the beginning of COVID, uh, with the lockdowns and the reaction, particularly from individual states to the federal government's actions, that there is a bit of a growing friction between the federal government and uh, its uh, the citizens of the United States, and more particularly, like individual states. Uh, in the last week alone, we've had the Inflation Reduction Act passed, uh, which is spinning up uh, an army of eighty-seven thousand IRS agents. You've had a lot of states um, push back against that. Uh, Attorney General of Missouri wrote a letter to. Uh, the federal government yesterday, I believe, really uh, 
on concealed spread. carry. I saw that. So yeah, okay. basically, they were, the FBI was going to go inspect uh, concealed carry records at local county sheriff's offices, and he told them to go pound sand. So, which is interesting. Yeah, in Florida, you have uh, after the Mar-a-Lago debacle. Who knows what's going on there exactly? But you do have state representatives in Florida saying that the, the legislator should meet and um, basically ban federal agents from coming in the state and and doing anything uh, uh, to arrest Floridians. And so, is the the administrative state, the federal government here in the United States, do you think it's peaked in terms of its power and influence over American citizens? It seems like we're living through this inflection point and day by day, people are becoming more uh, dismayed by the state of the federal government and its infringement on our individual civil liberties. I don't think, I mean, a government which is reviled, um, and which causes many people to feel dismayed can nonetheless acquire considerably more power than our government currently holds, right? That, that is something we know from the experiences of Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, North Korea, the Chinese Communist Party, et cetera, right? So the U.S. government is not, it, it, it still has some constitutional limitations. Um, it does occupy a disproportionately large slice of GDP in terms of the amount of resources it commands. It's closing it on 50%. When we were growing up, it was closer to 30. 100, 100 years ago, it was closer to five. So you know, the, the amount of resources that the US government controls and commands is huge. What's interesting to me is that the, the method, the, the mode of the, of the US government seems to be like 1960s, 70s, 80s, bureaucratic state, no computers, no tech, lots of people. Uh, most, much of the job that the US government does could be done by an organization that's much smaller uh, and much more nimble and much more technologically driven. What we tend to see in the evolution of complex societies is that they increase in complexity until the burden of the complexity becomes too large, at which point they break down into simpler constituent components, right, which can manage themselves much more effectively and efficiently with the resources. That's uh, Joseph Tainter's thesis, is basically that complexity combined with stress is what brings down complex societies and empires. We are currently at the, it seems at the limits of the complexity that the American system can manage. There are, you know, the people who run the country think very simplistically. They're unable to manage, uh, you know, systems like the constitutional system without offending, you know, vast numbers of people on the other side. And that's true with every single branch of the government, right? So Congress and the Supreme Court can't figure out a way to keep everybody happy about abortion. One side wants to totally crush the other uh, on that debate. One institution is controlled by one side, one institution is controlled by the other side. So I think we're living through a period where the, the difference, and we're seeing that in the way that representatives vote. So if you look at how, um, you know, the level of crossover between the two parties, it's considerably less than it was 50 or 60 years ago, right? So 50 or 60 years ago, you could get a supermajority in both houses to vote on a bunch of different stuff. You could break vetoes. Now you can't. So I don't know what is causing that. I'm sure the historians will have lots of, lots of explanations. Um, part of it might be driven by social media. Part of it is driven by a lack of socialization. Um, and a lot of it, I'm sure, is just not explainable because we're living through it and unable to see yeah, from the, we're on a, we don't have the perspective, right, to, to look at the situation from the outside. And we're not armed with all the facts because there are things we just don't know. 
that will only be knowable after they've happened. So I, I think that, yeah, we're probably, the state can get more powerful. I think that every, I think that a lot of what it's been doing since COVID has just been missteps. They've been self-inflicted uh, mistakes, which, you know, for whatever reason, our bureaucratic class um, doesn't have the same mindset that our parents did and our grandparents did. And so what they're doing is they're offending vast numbers of Americans with what they assumed were routine government actions. And like I, I spend, I split my time between Connecticut and DC, right? So when I'm in DC, like people are just like, if you go and talk to people from the other side, let's say on a dating app or something like that, uh, there's really very little understanding <laughs> on how people, how reasonable people can disagree on matters of national politics, which if you think about it from the perspective of you know, want being one of 340 million Americans is insane, right? Like the issues, if you think about, I don't know about you, but thinking personally for me, the amount my life has changed as a result of one party or the other being in power uh, has been almost nil. I mean, you, you can count it in, you know, basis points uh, in terms of the financial consequences. So really, the only thing that's really being broadcast out of Washington is the feels, Right. And as a sort of like day to day operating procedure or like, let's say, even if you know, I live in Connecticut and I pay taxes in Connecticut, it's a high tax state. The Delta is not that big compared to a zero tax state like New Hampshire. But the feelings that are elicited, um, you know, as a, by politicians on either side to describe and exacerbate those differences um, you know, is huge. So for some reason, people aren't thinking rationally about these kinds of decisions and meeting halfway and saying, well, you know, you want to increase taxes 400 basis points. I want to cut them 200 basis points. Why don't we increase them 150 or something like that, right? Like there's no ability to see compromise. There's no ability to do horse trading. People are very stuck in their ways. And that applies from the very top of the government all the way down. And we were on, and you look at the COVID response, same thing. Tony Fauci, like was incapable of being honest with the American people about the whole situation, right? And if he had been, like, I would have been 100% behind him if he just said, listen, there's a lot we don't know. Um, at the moment, our best guess, right, is that you should wear masks and you should probably get vaccinated. Uh, and that's that's my hunch. I'm not sure. Uh, we really strongly encourage you to do that. And, you know, we're not going to mandate it. Instead, what they did is they came out with this line of shit about, you know, you must, you, know, you must do this and this does work and it's going to prevent transmission. And if you don't do it, you're a bad person and you're a bad citizen and blah, blah, blah. So the, the propaganda was extreme. The propaganda was very quickly proven wrong. Um, and the wrongness of the propaganda was very rapidly disseminated on social media, which led to a distrust in the institutions. Absolute own goal. There is, there is absolutely no reason why the government had to do this to itself. There's absolutely no reason why they couldn't have just shot straight with the American people and said, listen, like, here's what, here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's a very diplomatic you know, response, giving you some recommendations about how to handle it. And they couldn't resist, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't control themselves. They just said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take the emergency. We're going to run with it. And hopefully everyone will take it. And now we're starting to see the, the backlash on that. The CDC basically just posted a statement yesterday saying all of the stuff that if you posted it on Twitter a year ago, would have you labeled a, a whack job conspiracy theorist and banned from the platform. It turned around and said, well, you know, the people who aren't sick don't need to be quarantined. And, uh, you know, you don't you, sh you don't need to be vaccinated. It's strongly advised and you don't have to wear masks indoors and blah, 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 blah. So, like, 
you know, anyone who is living through the cultural hysteria of the last two years um, is, is sitting there, we're tearing our hair out, being like, great, like, why couldn't you have done this to start? What was, what was so bad about charting a course down the middle that wouldn't have made a faction happy, right, but wouldn't have offended the other side either, right? You could have just gone down the middle, taken it on the chin, accepted a little humility, uh, and, uh, and, and said, listen, there's stuff we don't know. We're not omnipotent and, uh, and you know, we're not omniscient. And they just couldn't, they couldn't help themselves. So I think there, there's some failing somewhere at some point of you know, the American experience of becoming an adult. It might be at the universities, which I'm not sure, but they're not teaching people how to, how to communicate effectively. They're not teaching them how to think well. And that's coming out now in the bureaucracies, which are unable to function in a, in a way that builds consensus. Yeah. I mean, you, you couple... The COVID mandates, whether it be lockdowns, vaccination, proving to be own goals that are, I mean, the vaccine stuff, I think the backlash was undeniable that it's not as safe and effective as originally marketed is going to be massive. And I think that'll begin to come this fall. And you couple that with inflation. Inflation was transitory last year, and now we've had the before this month, we had consecutive 40-year highs for, for about six or seven months. Uh, the same government uh, is forcing us into a terrible situation from an energy policy perspective where we're becoming less energy um, uh, secure. And so when you combine all these things, COVID, inflation, energy policy, like I find it hard to believe that we look back in two years and people haven't completely lost confidence in you know, the federal government's ability to actually manage this country and sorry for the honking horn in the back. Yeah. Well, what was that? Did they, did they finally get you? Is that the, the FBI party van setting off the alarm outside your house? Yeah. I'm pretty sure they're, they're posted up in this house right behind me. And they, they just, <laughs> I actually used to do yeah. that in high school. I used to park my class, uh, excuse me, park my car right outside of my uh, seventh period Latin class. And my teacher, was a was a hardo and i had a, a middle class that just set off my car alarm and let it go for like five minutes and watch him stew so <laughs> it, might be, it might actually be mr doherty getting back at me for for torturing him in junior year that's, that, class. That, that's pretty that's pretty funny um yeah the, but you know the other thing is the the great thing about bitcoin and you know as we, this conversation started talking about you know, what happens if, what world do we live in if people are buying their groceries in Bitcoin, right? What does that world look like? One thing that Bitcoin does that nothing else does is it executes, right? And it just continues executing. You can trust that the execution is going to happen the same way. The issuance schedule is going to happen the same way. What I find interesting is that we're starting to see technologies that perform other functions. And I know this is, you know, sacrilege to some Bitcoiners, but we're starting to see tech that performs other functions uh, and manages to have a monetary incentive mechanism, which uh, it, which allows for those technologies to be provided on a decentralized basis. So one which famously blew up was uh, Axie Infinity, right? Which turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. But that was sort of a, a hint as to what possibly could happen in the future: is that you could have a community which you know runs itself and provides content and interaction by providing payments in game. Um, Helium is another system that a lot of people absolutely despise. Uh, and I don't have my ba my bags weigh precisely zero, right? So I'm not I'm not shilling for anything here. But Helium's an interesting system 
that uses something called LoRaWAN or long range wide area networks. And it plug takes these LoRaWAN nodes and then hooks them up to you know, your home Wi-Fi router and then provides this LoRaWAN service, which allows you to control devices. Now, nobody uses LoRaWAN for anything useful, right? Which is possibly why Helium is not you know, being very widely provided. And generally speaking, you know, if you're trying to provide things over the airwaves, that's another area which is really tightly regulated. But what it hints at, right, is a possible future where things like cell phone service or, you know, Wi-Fi or various other stuff could in fact be provided on a decentralized basis, right, um, where you pay as you go and it's metered that way rather than running through a telco, right? So that's just, you know, that's one potential hint at where things are going. Why would we want those is because the distrust in the institutions at this point extends to pretty much every institution, right? So if you go, if you want to find out distrust of institutions in American life, um, law enforcement's there, Congress is there, the Supreme Court's are there, schools are there, universities are there, large corporations right now engage in overtly political activity as well. So a lot of people are really very displeased with that for, you know, particularly if their politics aren't official regime sanctioned politics. Um, and so what we're starting to see is a, this groundswelling of creativity, where people are building services that have completely exited um, the, the mainstream system. And so I, I expect over the next 10 years, we're going to see more and more and more of those uh, proliferate. And you know, most of them will fail, right? 99.9% .9 will fail, but the 1% that don't will be very impactful like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum. Yeah. I mean, we're somewhat taking part of that right now as well, not exactly right now, but when this episode is syndicated to our RS, RSS feed, we're part of the podcasting 2.0 platform. So people will be streaming us stats as they listen. Uh, and nice. that is a way to exit the, the corporate advertising model, even though we do have advertisements here. If uh, they yep. ever got completely uh, disgusted by the content I was putting out there and decided to pull their ad dollars, I would have that, that fail safe in podcasting 2.0, which nobody would be able to stop. Um, so yeah, no, there is a lot of creativity, but yeah, it is scary. Like again, this tornado cash targeting and, uh, the IRS army that's being spun up. It's, it's like, you're looking out. I don't, I don't, that IRS army is not going to survive a Republican Congress. Um, I, I very strongly I, I, suspect it's not going to survive a Republican Congress. They'll pull, they'll just yank, they'll yank the budget for that in the, in the next, uh, the next Congress. So it's. Yeah, I, I, it's yeah, it's a huge. I mean, it's like something ridiculous. It's like one IRS agent for every 500 Americans that they'll be hiring, or something ridiculous like that. So we can actually do the exact math here. Yeah, but um, even if the budget gets pulled, there is that intent. There is those in power that would like to thrust 4,000 Americans. So yeah, I mean, yeah, but that's you know that's just that's the country we live in now. It's not not the country we grew up in. Um, it's not the country we're going to die in. We're in this transitional period and um, people are doing some pretty, people are doing extreme things. Um, a, a very prominent VC, uh, who I'm not going to name, um, you know, he and I were discussing this about six, eight months ago. And his view is that we're living through the 1840s, 1850s, right? And that there's something really dark and foreboding over the horizon uh, that that we don't want to that we really don't want to think about. We're not sure what it is yet. I don't know what it is, um, but that mood, right, is people in tech are paid. They make money because they can see the future, right? So particularly people who are VCs. 
And I like to think that I remember, right, the way things were in the 90s and even the early 2000s, right? Like America was a much calmer country. Like the, the, the debates, the criticism of George W. Bush over Iraq seems tame compared to the stuff that's routinely being slung at Biden and Trump, right? So like, it's absolutely, it was like, it's like, oh, that's what an adorable little country. They like have... They have you know, discussions, very earnest discussions over the presence or absence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And they go and do the invasion anyway. And there are no consequences and no one's home gets raided. And isn't that, you know, isn't that a civilized place, right? And you look at what's going on now. And I'm, like, I'm not going to mention what they say about the, the current president, but like, it's crazy. Um, you know, it's, it, who knows whether it's true, but like the environment is much, much, much more heated than it ever was when we were growing up. Um, and like you know, most of political debate before 2005 took place in the pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times. It was William F. Buckley and Bill Kristol, you know, writing opinion columns um, and Charles Krauthammer writing opinion columns. And then, you, you know, your dad sitting at the head of the table reading his newspaper in the morning, nodding approvingly at the, at the latest Krauthammer column in the New York Post. Like that's that was how politics was done 20 years ago. Now, like. You, you see it, just people are completely unhinged. They're way over the top. They're posting threats online. They're talking about all kinds of stuff they do on TikTok. They're doing, it's totally bonkers. Um, you know, kids doing stuff on TikTok. The, the latest one was something called the uh, Orbeez Challenge. And I actually, this happened the other day to me. Like there's a thing called the Orbeez Challenge where basically people go around and they shoot each other with these Orbeez gel guns. And they, you know, they, they would go, ha ha, gotcha, boom. And so they shoot each other. And if you're caught lacking, you know, without your piece, then you get zapped, right? That's that's how it goes. So it started with people doing that. And then it evolved into people driving by innocent bystanders and shooting them with these gel guns from vehicles, like in suburban Connecticut. Um, and people are getting arrested for it. And it's just like, and then they're posting, and the reason they're doing it is because they can post the video to TikTok afterwards, right? So say little skeptical of the fact that TikTok is pushing a trend. You know, TikTok, which is run by the People's Republic of China, is pushing a trend which encourages Americans to literally carry out drive-by shootings of one another. Um, <laughs> well, like, well, like that, that sh- that's happening. And it's happening. If you look up Orbeez, O-R-B-E-E-Z, uh, challenge on, on the internet, like 17, 18-year-old kids, kids, 18 years old, you're an adult, are doing this. Like, could you imagine... 20 years ago, I don't know how old you are. I was, you know, 20 years ago is when I was about that age. I, I cannot conceive of like being thinking ever like, hey, you know, what's a really good idea. Let's drive by like little old people in beach communities and and assault them. Uh, and that would be a really fun way to spend a Friday night. Like I I've n- it never would have crossed my mind. It had never happened. Now it's routine. Like you look it up and not only is it routine, there's a social contagion right? In that it's a, it's like a meme, which has spread out across the country via the internet and people are going and copying it despite the fact that it wouldn't take much diligence to find out that doing this is like felony assault and battery. So like, it's just that that's the kind of country. And this is literally about a week and a half ago, I was riding my bike and some kids went and zapped me on my bike. And I was just like, are you kidding? Like, are you serious? And this is, and I looked it up. I was like, what is this thing? And that's what it was. It was a TikTok thing. So, so that's, that's, you know, that, that's, that's where we are. That's the country we live in. It's not the country we grew up in. I fell down a TikTok, not on the app. Somebody posted a thread on Twitter 
uh, apparently there's a growing trend of like open militia recruiting going on on TikTok as well uh, in reaction to the, uh, <laughs> the state of the political environment here in the U.S. People That's are- so great. That's crazy. In Connecticut, it's actually unlawful to um, it's actually unlawful to form a militia. So uh, if you're in Connecticut and you see something on TikTok inviting you to form a militia, don't do it. You will go to jail. It's a felony. Um, so, like, it's, but that's crazy. That's totally, totally crazy. Um, so, but uh, like, 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 what? Why? Where? Where are people getting the idea? Like back in the day, I remember when Bush was president, and I remember when Obama was president. I remember when Clinton was president, and. The the thing that really I think actually encapsulates the difference between the present mentality and the past mentality was Bush versus Gore, right? So when Bush v. Gore happened, so obviously Bush won the electoral vote and Gore won the popular vote. Won the popular vote. The popular vote's not a thing juridically, but um, Gore got more votes in terms of raw vote count than Bush did. So went to the courts, right? And every media pundit in the United States, right, left, center, people on the right, people on the left, whatever said, you know, it's a real testament to the stability and the you know, enduring, you know, in, enduring legacy of the United States that in any other country, there'd be tanks in the streets uh, when this happened. And in the United States, we resolve our differences peacefully in accordance with the rule of law, right? So Rehnquist was, I think, still in charge. So like the Supreme Court still was basically guys from the 70s, right, still running the show. And so that was that. Was that. So... <laughs> so everyone was very proud of themselves. Look at us. Look how good we are. Look at how civilized we are that we did that. Can you imagine, right, when Trump did it, right, when he won the won the electoral vote but not the popular vote, people went bananas, right? So granted, there wasn't a court case that went along with it. But since then, we've had pack the court. We've had revise the electoral college, this and that. January 6th obviously happened. So like and now people are recruiting for militias on, I didn't know about this because I don't use TikTok, but you're, you're telling me people are recruiting for militias on TikTok because why? Because a search warrant was executed? Like, like no, like that's, not, that's not the, but the, the thing is, the more people say it, the fewer people believe in the old system. So we have all of these destructive memes being propagated, um, you know, and there's nothing you can do about it in the American system because it's freedom of speech. But like the memes that are, getting the most traction are not the memes which we grew up with. The memes we grew up with were, you know what? Yeah, fair's fair. We lost an election. See in four years or two years or whatever else at the midterms. Uh, and we'll we'll teach you then, right? We'll if you do don't do a good job, we'll we'll throw you throw you out. Um, that like if you said that now, it almost sounds quaint, right? Compared to the stuff that you hear. And it's everywhere. It's on the news, it's on social media, it's everywhere. And it's really like as a lawyer who you know, even in the law schools, like they, they're doing the same thing. They're saying, we'll burn it down. Roe v. Wade is illegitimate. The Supreme Court is illegitimate. And you can see there was a law professor at Georgetown who said the other day, like what the Supreme Court's doing is not law. They're, um, you know, they're, they're totally illegitimate. Their precedents should be ignored. And like, as a lawyer, you look at that and you're like, what? <laughs> like, like where, where, where is this coming from? Like, why, why are people incapable of taking the L? Um, and just like, just like, okay, take the L, go and organize, like, go participate in the democratic process, uh, get more votes than the other guy, and congratulations, you'll, you'll get whatever laws you want, provided they're not unconstitutional. So that's like, that, yeah, it's hard to put my finger on it, but like every time I look at political discourse, I am perennially dismayed um, that nobody, that everyone seems to be losing their minds, and no one can just sit down and say, oh, you know, maybe the people who are ph- philosophical opponents and neighbors. Uh, you know, maybe they're 
belief systems, which are different from mine, uh, you know, are part of a system of ideas you know, on which reasonable people can disagree uh, and still you know, coexist peacefully. Like the, the fact that nobody can just like say that, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't care what my neighbor teaches their kids about pronouns, you know, and I'm just going to kind of hang out here at my house and do my thing. Like there, there's no ability for people to kind of just live and let live. It's a very, it has to be all or nothing one way or the other. And I don't know why that, I don't know why that's happening. All I know is Bitcoin, Bitcoin never, never told me to do anything. Bitcoin never tried to boss me around. Um, Bitcoin never, you know, Bitcoin never tried to take anything from me. Uh, Bitcoin has always been nice to me. Um, it's always done what I've asked it to do uh, as long as I play by the rules. And like, that's, I don't know, it's kind of refreshing, the crypto world, because the crypto world never, never imposes, right? And only, you only have permission to do things or not. And if you've got permission to do them, you can go do them and no one will stop you. And that, that's kind of a, kind of a nice way to, to live. Unless you set up like a privacy preserving mixer. Then, uh, well, well yeah. but like, that's, that's where you interact with the real world, right? And so it's you interact with the real world and laws that have been on the books for half a century. And, you know, if you spin it, if you spin it up, if you publish the code, right, nothing wrong with that. Um, but if you start managing something, which is an illegal service, I think you, it's not unreasonable to expect that you're going to have company uh, you know, at your front door from the federal government very soon. Yeah. Uh, so what do you see on the horizon from a, a regulatory perspective or everybody wants clarity in regards to Bitcoin. Uh, I originally reached out to you because uh, the blog post that you wrote in 2018 resurfaced mm-hmm. of some uh, precedent that was being set over in the UK uh, court system. Yeah. So but, I can, uh, yeah, I can tell you about that. So, so it's not, not the UK court system, but it's, so the UK is a weird country. Um, they have a queen. She's great. Um, everybody loves her. Uh, parliament, she has no power, but she has ultimate power at the same time. Um, but formally, you know, formally she's, she is the state, but at the same time, if she ever exercised her power, it would trigger a constitutional crisis. It's a very weird system. Anyway, parliament is their uh, bicameral house that writes the laws. In practice, there's only one house that really has any real power, and that's called the House of Commons, which is directly elected by the people uh, in district by district uh, in a first-past-the-post system. Um, so currently the parliament, the House of Commons, is dominated by the Conservative Party, uh, which is not really very conservative anymore. It's really more like the Labour Party of the 90s, just a sort of continuation. So that's um, uh, anyway, that, that's just my, my personal read of the situation. And um, it's full of politicians who don't write laws. Who does write laws, we ask? Um, generally speaking, every law in the books of the United Kingdom on any matter of consequence will be written in the first draft by something called the Law Commission. And the Law Commission is a bunch of nerds uh, who are lawyers and <laughs> very, very, very uh, uh, erudite legal scholars and academics who understand really the, the width and breadth of English law as it currently exists. English law isn't as politicized as American law um, because they don't have a written constitution like we do, and what, or rather they don't have a written constitution in one place which is then the subject of political interpretation. So in the US, we have the constitution, and then we have two varying schools of thought about how to interpret it. One is textualist originalist. The other is more progressive, you know, the living constitution approach, where we can uh, be more expansive in, in understanding what it means. And so that sort of core discussion over uh, what the constitution means, the basic law means, uh, kind of carries over into every other law that we write. 
right? So politicians have much more of an active role in writing laws in the US than they do in the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, however, the politicians kind of set the priorities and the law commission basically sets the methods. So they'll say, we want to do this. And the law commission will go, okay, well, we've done a research on, on this particular subject. And here's a 600 page report, which is a survey of all applicable law you know, in the area, because it's only one country, well, the United Kingdom is three nations, uh, or four nations, one country. Um, so it's England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Um, England and Wales is one jurisdiction within, you know, within those three, and Northern Ireland, Scotland, and England and Wales are the three constituent jurisdictions. And in England and Wales, at least, um, you know, the law has been pretty much, like, it's an unbroken chain of tradition going back thousand years, right? So they have concepts around things like property, which are fairly well defined. Um, so so uh, this brings us to the subject of Bitcoin. English law generally bifurcates property into two separate categories, shows is in possession or things in possession, shows is French for thing, and shows is in action or things in action, things which are enforced when you go to a judge to sue on them. So um, so is this is this video recorded as well as audio recorded? Yes. Cool. Excellent. So this here is a shows in possession, right? So it's a thing I can hold on to it. This is a shows in possession. This contract here, I'm going to face in the other direction. This is a shows in action, right? It's a thing that you go and enforce in front of the car. This This, on the other hand, is a shows in possession, right? So stuff that you can, hey, you're such a good boy. Yes, you are. You want to say hi to everyone on the podcast? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry, I had to show off the dog. So, um, so anyway, shows us in possession are tangible things you can hold. Shows us in action are intangible things you enforce. The problem with Bitcoin, I wrote this post four years ago, and I said the problem with Bitcoin is that it is neither, right? And the UK figured this out like pretty quickly. The English courts looked at this, and because you know they have these categories of property in the US, let me rewind. In the US, we don't have property categories, which are that narrowly defined. Property law is a creature of state law in the United States. There are 50 separate approaches to it. And generally speaking, they rely on precedents, which kind of like have the new world baked into them. Um, so there's one famous case about a fox and capturing a fox and who acquires the proprietary interest in the fox. Another famous case, uh, it's called relative title, the doctrine which comes from that, which is that if you've got the better title than somebody else, based on all the facts, the property is yours in the event that you bring it in front of a court. So there's another case called Popov versus Hayashi over one of Mark McGuire's uh, home run balls, right? He whacked it over the fence. Uh, Hayashi or Popov caught it, it got knocked out of his hand, someone else got it. And the two guys who caught it uh, both quarreled over the title of the ball, right? And they said, who's who actually owns the ball? Uh, is it the person who caught it and then had it knocked out of his hand or the second person who retrieved it? And it wound up being a pyrrhic victory for both of them because the price of the ball at auction did not pay their legal fees that they spent fighting over it. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a silly decision on their part. So in the US, we've got, a, we're a little more flexible because we're a new world country. In England, they don't uh, have that much flexibility because everything in England that has been owned, right, or is capable of ownership derives from something else. And you can trace back the title or the entitlements or the money or everything else, you can trace it back a thousand years, right? So it's pretty clear who owns what. The problem with Bitcoin is that it is neither of those things. It cannot be possessed. So the, the reason I thought of this a couple of years ago is people are like, well, it's a digital bearer asset. It's like, well, it's not a bearer asset because a bearer asset is literally something you can hold on to, 
right? You can physically transport it. And title is transferred by the transfer of the object to the recipient. So if I have this and I give it to you, then you own it. That's it, right? That's what a bearer asset means. So it's not a shows in possession, right? Um, nor is it a shows in action. Because if I have a Bitcoin and I lose my private key, I can go to any judge in the land and I can say, listen, there's a guy who lost four or five, actually, it's more like $100 million now of Bitcoin in a computer that's in a trash dump in Wales. And he could go to any judge in the United Kingdom and he could get an IMRAM order against the Bitcoins. So yes, you own those Bitcoins now, but uh, the likelihood that it could be enforced is zero, right? No one's going to, you can't enforce a con. Bitcoin doesn't know. It doesn't care about a court order or a writ. So it's not a thing in action either. So I said, listen, it's actually something else. Um, and it's not, so information in the United Kingdom, just one third category, information is not capable of being property, right? Pure information is not property. The case or one of the cases whence this principle derives is a case called Oxford v. Moss, uh, where a guy named Moss broke into the teacher's lounge at Oxford University, read the answers to a test, right? And then put the answer sheet back in the folder whence it came, went and took the exam and mailed it, right? So that's the idea. What they, they tried to prosecute him for theft, right? And the court said, well, he didn't really steal anything from you. He just acquired knowledge of certain information and information is not the kind of pure information is not the kind of thing which is capable of, uh, of, of bearing a, an interest in uh, a property interest, right? It, property interests do not, uh, you are not conferred with information because there's no exclusivity, right? That comes with it. So if you have a, if I write down a, I don't know, let's just take a piece of paper here. Let's see. Uh, I can't use that piece of paper. I can use this one. So let's say I write down, I have a secret code, right? Um, five, uh, five, seven, one. Here you go. So here you go. here's my secret code. It says 50571. It's super secret and it's mine. And I just transferred it to you, right? And I transferred it to every listener of your podcast. Have I moved property there or have I transmitted information? English system would say, nothing really has been transferred, right? Because I, I haven't moved that number, that secret code beyond my possession. Uh, I've merely transmitted it over the internet. And now everyone has knowledge of the code, which is 50571. So therefore everyone has access to this bit of information. And so it's not really something where I can now say, oh, well, you're infringing on my property rights, right? So if I took a picture of it, there'd be a copyright. Um, if I kept it in a safe and kept it secret, um, Maybe there would be some type of, you know, duty of confidence, which would be breached if someone went into a safe and took it out and used it for their own purposes and made a profit from it. But fundamentally, the, the, the thing, the code that I've just transmitted to everybody is not this. It's like the Higgs boson attaches itself you know, to matter, right? That's the necessary piece. Information on its own is not enough to constitute matter, right? Or mass or something like that. Um, and it's not enough to constitute property. Now, the question then turns to what is a Bitcoin? And my thesis was that it is, in fact, for English law purposes and probably the purposes of most other common law jurisdictions, a third category of property, right? And that doesn't mean that, like, we've discovered something. It just means that we've discovered a whole. The only thing we have discovered is a whole in the existing system of rules that we have, right? And so because property is not, again, like, property is not just stuff, Right. Property is the description of the rules that exist, which describe the relationship and govern the relationship between people and stuff. Property law emerges whenever people are present, right? And so we have to have a, a category that describes our relationship with Bitcoin. 
And so with Bitcoin, I said, it's probably a new type of property. I called it crypto property with a K. And the reason I use crypto with a K rather than crypto with a C is because I tried to sort of be clever and distinguish it and hopefully it'd get memed. And then I'd get lots of footnotes and journal articles about it. That hasn't yet happened. But, uh, but, but basically crypto property, the idea is that the defining characteristic of the property is the secret which is required in order to control it. So it's a digital thing on a decentralized system where the defining characteristic of control is exclusive or non-exclusive knowledge of the secret, which is required to write to that database, right? And so that is in a sense, pure information, right? Because a Bitcoin private key is capable of being ascertained through the passage of time. You could do it by hand. It would take you many trillions of years to do it, but you could do it. Um, so it's a secret, which is ascertainable by human ingenuity, uh, but is unlikely to be ascertained on commercial timescales and therefore should be treated as something which is distinct. And I said, listen, this is a third category of property. We, needed a, we need their own rules. The Law Commission sat down, did a report, uh, pleased to report that we at Anderson Kill, we were consulted uh, on this as, as named in the acknowledgements, and they agreed with our conclusion. They basically said, listen, we agree with you, uh, and here's a 500-page report explaining exactly why we agree with you and what's necessary. Uh, to to sort of you know to to sort of change English law in order to accommodate it, the the practice as a practical you know, so as a, as a legally as an academic exercise, um, this is of very little significance to the ordinary Bitcoin user. As a practical matter, though, right, like the kinds of questions which this invites are: Do we need new relationships, default relationships over custody, right? So at the moment. If you sent your crypto to Celsius and Celsius went and frittered it away on stupid loans uh, and then went bankrupt, right? You're an unsecured creditor. You lent the stuff to Celsius. Celsius then went and lent it to other people and you're shit out of luck. Yeah. Do we need new default rules which say, listen, Celsius actually should have been a trustee right, of those assets uh, and there should have been an imposition of a trust between Celsius and those creditors because you know, reasons, right? Should it automatically be subject to something like a bailment? Right or something like that. So there are all of the basically all of the rules that we have around taking security, taking custody, and the consequences of what happens when you give someone else your coins as part of a commercial relationship. Um, kind of need they need to not be rewritten, but they need to be revisited. And so it's an opportunity to rewrite everything right the, in a crypto native way that makes sense for users and makes sense for business because the existing systems aren't quite applicable. Right, they're close, and there are analogies being drawn. But I think the significance is that because we've got this totally sui generis category of property, and people are starting to figure out that that's the case, there's an opportunity for the first time in 500 years to rewrite from scratch, if not ever, actually, to be honest with you. There's the first time really ever that we can look at every single relationship in commercial law and property law, and we have an opportunity to redefine it from really you know, year, year zero. Right. So things of possession have been governed by laws for thousand, you know, thousand year, thousands of years. Right. Things in action that you bring to court. Similarly, those have been governed for thousands of years. But as we know it, the English legal system has really been quite advanced for the last three or four hundred. And so now we've got a new category of property. We're going to need new relationships. We're going to need new stuff. Um, we need new rules around custody. Um, and then security and various other things. And it's a huge opportunity for any legal system willing to do that work. Uh, to rewrite the rule book and, uh, and, and create something that's digitally native and, and interesting. So that, that's kind of what happened in England. 
Well, how do we make sure if this, if people agree that this new category of property exists and there needs to be you know, new frameworks erected around it as it pertains to law? And you look around at the administrative state globally, whether it be here in the US, UK, world, they don't really seem to be respecting civil liberties or freedom in the digital age. Like, is it, is it a problem that we have the uh, administrative state in power now setting the precedent for all this stuff? You know, I, I think the problem with coming up with a global answer to that is that law is a very thoroughly local phenomenon, right? And it's something which a lot of lawyers are actually kind of bad at thinking about it in that way because they're usually, most lawyers are only versed on one legal system. Um, I, I'm trained on two. I got two law degrees from two different countries, got admitted twice through, you know, from scratch in both places. And uh, that's England and the US. So they're quite, they're similar legal systems, but they're different enough that like I kind of understand that nothing's really written in stone. Right. It's just that everybody thinks it's written in stone because they haven't really they haven't uh, they haven't managed to crawl out of the cave yet. Um, so there, there's it's very lawyers are very much like you know, the, the, the individuals in Plato's cave, seeing the shadows in the wall and mistaking it for reality. Um, what they're looking at is thoroughly man made. Right. And it can be changed. And they just like sometimes they lack the perspective to see how and, and, uh, and, and, and what the pathway is because they're so stuck in that one system in which they've been trained. So like law is local. Um, I expect that there's going to be a lot of jurisdictional arbitrage between various countries. I have a huge amount of confidence, um, which I didn't have before the law commission did this, but I do now uh, that the English are being, that the English and UK more generally, so the Scots and the Northern Irish and the Welsh uh, are being very capably advised by the law commission on this one. Um, there are some very smart people who really understand crypto extremely well uh, in the UK. And not only that, it's clear from the nature of the proposals that they're, they're one of us. Right. So they're like, there's a, there's a mole somewhere in the, in the law commission. And I suspect there are more than one of them, uh, or there is more than one of them. Um, and, and like, they're, they're being very well advised. And, uh, and so I suspect that the English, and for whatever reason, I suspect the UK is going to come out. Okay. When it comes to regulating this stuff, they're not so well advised when it comes to, issues like free speech. So in, in the United Kingdom, they currently have a number of bills up for consideration. One of them is called the online safety bill, uh, which is basically, a, it's absolutely anathema to traditional notions of uh, freedom of expression that we have here in the United States. Uh, and it seems to be, despite huge amounts of opposition, it seems to still be marching forward, regardless of which government uh, is going to be in power. Like if labor were in power, this bill would still be advancing. We saw that, was that... Was that out of the UK, the video of a man being arrested for causing stress to somebody on social media? Yeah, that would have been um, that would have been under Section 127 of the Communications Act 2003, uh, which is which is sending a grossly inf- offensive communication, I believe. Let me just make sure I got that right. So 127 Communications Act. Yeah, so it makes an offense to send a message grossly offensive or an indecent, obscene or menacing character over a public electronic communications network. Like that's an example of one of, there are a couple of different UK provisions currently on the books, which criminalize basically being a troll, right? Section 127 of the Communications Act is one of them. Section one of the Malicious Communications Act is another. Um, and so those, like, they would just not pass constitutional muster in the United States. <laughs> like, it's like clearly an infringement on, on American style freedom of speech. 
the, the online safety bill would basically impose regulatory obligations on providers of social media services to proactively police that content. So it gives the government an excuse, essentially, to sort of pry under the hood of a social media provider that wants to operate in the United Kingdom uh, and make them do what they want in terms of content moderation of propaganda or you know, certain ideas which are offensive to the state. So if you didn't, you know, let's say they had this bill in the books three years ago and COVID happened, like you can guarantee that vaccine propaganda, for example, the government would seek to impose direct liability on social media companies for hosting you know, COVID denialism, as it was termed back then, uh, even though most of, much of that turned out to be true, right? So like that's, that's the kind of stuff that exists in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that it does exist, but they just don't have the same tradition of freedom of speech that we do and haven't for a thousand years. So not unreasonable to expect that this is, uh, those are the kinds of laws that they have in the books. Yeah. Freedom of speech is Bitcoin speech. Uh, the Bitcoin code base is speech. I don't think Bitcoin is speech. I think, I think the code is speech. I think running a node is speech. Um, I think running a node is speech and I think publishing the code is speech. Uh, transacting might be partially speech, um, depending on what you do, what metadata you put on the transaction. Um, but like running a Bitcoin mixer, that's probably not speech. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so is a speech is a property i mean you have sailor calling a property you have the cftc defining it as a commodity you know other it can be both i mean it can be both the bitcoin the bitcoin code base is property and it's speech right so it's property which is like the publishing when you publish the code you're engaged in speech um for sure right and when you whoever writes the code and contributes to it like they have a proprietary interest in the code which they submitted and it's licensed to you under the MIT license, right? So it's capable of being multiple things to multiple people at you know, at different times and in different places in different ways. So in its capacity as code, it's speech, in its capacity as you know, software, publishing software, which you might run on your computer when you run a full node, that's speech. Um, and as in the capacity of you know, something which is capable of being transacted where you can own it, it's property as well so like it can be both yeah is it legal tender now that el salvador has rendered it legal tender do we have to respect the international trade deal yeah it's legal tender in el salvador that's for sure it's not legal tender here but it's definitely legal tender in el salvador but aren't there people trying to make the argument that since uh, aren't there some um like some sections in international trade contracts that deem if one country renders a particular currency legal tender, anybody who is engaged in that that trade agreement must also recognize that. I don't know. Um, usually, sometimes you'll see contracts where they designate a payment currency. Um, so, for example, you know they'll have a Greek bond which is repayable in pound sterling, or Greek bond which is repayable in euros. And so there was a concern. Um, so back in 2014, 15-ish, the big concern was that Greece was going to crash out of the European Union uh, and that they were going to replace the euro with the new drachma in order to get out of their debt crisis So and re-denominate all government debts in the new drachma. So that was obviously a problem for certain securitization transactions where the currency of the transaction was the euro. 
uh, because obviously the people who were note holders would have been very much uh, left <laughs> left left to hang out to dry if they had uh, put euros into this deal and gotten back significantly devalued new drachma. So there and there were provisions right saying that they you know in the event of you know a, a crashing out of uh, of the of the country in question, you know, there are provisions in the contracts which dealt with what happened to that currency, right? So, or to the currency, the contractually designated currency. Um, so the so contracts can allocate risk in that way. Um, so if your contract says, listen, you must pay in the legal tender of El Salvador, and the legal tender of El Salvador is Bitcoin, um, you presumably you'd have to price it in something. So you'd say you can pay us in you know, X dollar amount either in US dollars, which I believe is the other legal tender of El Salvador, or Bitcoin. Um, and you know, that would be fine, but that's something for the parties to allocate among themselves. However, El Salvador's designation of Bitcoin as legal tender doesn't really have any practical consequences for Americans, at least, um, in that we are taxable worldwide on our worldwide income and income and gains. Right. So if you have a Bitcoin and you live in the United States, you buy the Bitcoin at a dollar and you sell it for ten thousand dollars, you've got a gain of nine thousand or let's call it ten thousand and one. Uh, then you have a gain of uh, of ten thousand dollars, which if you did it within a year of the initial transaction, which, of course, is impossible given what Bitcoin did price wise. But anyway, if you did it within a year, it's chargeable to income tax. And if you did it longer than a year, it's chargeable to capital gains. So that's the same, actually, with Forex transactions. So if you acquire foreign currency when you're out in England, right, and you're going and doing whatever, and you decide you're going to go buy a cup of coffee with it, right, instead of using USD. Um, well, actually, that, I suppose, there, there. so let's say you get foreign currency, and then you trade it back, and you make money when you trade it back, right? You would have to pay money on the gain that you realized when you did that foreign currency trade. In practice, right, if, there, if that ever does happen, it's just like so de minimis that it's very rarely reported. Um, you know, and with Bitcoin, let's say you bought a cup of coffee with it, right? So you said, I'm going to go, I'm going to fly to England tomorrow and I'm going to go buy a cup of coffee with this Bitcoin I have. And I acquired the Bitcoin, excuse me, for $1 and now it's worth 10000 So I'm going to go buy this $3 cup of coffee with a much smaller, so normally I need, let's say I bought one Bitcoin for one buck. 10 years ago, it would have cost me three Bitcoins to buy the cup of coffee. Now it'll be 0. 0.000 one Bitcoin to buy the cup of coffee. Technically, when you do that, right, you're realizing a gain because you're getting something of value, the coffee, in exchange for the Bitcoin that you've just spent. Uh, there are proposals in the US to ensure the de minimis uh, taxation, uh, de minimis transactions like under 600 bucks aren't taxed, right? Because it makes it a nightmare to use Bitcoin as money. If every time you go and use it for a grocery store purchase or a cup of coffee or whatever, you're paying tax on it. But if you went and bought something big, like a car, then you would have a tax hit on the disposal, presumably, uh, based on the difference between your acquisition price and your disposal price of those coins. Um, so that's there are some complicated tax issues. The long story short is the only legal significance there could be for a designation of Bitcoin as legal tender would be here, where you price your acquisition and your disposal Right. In, at, in this, it, it, there's no difference. So if there's if there's a fluctuation in the value of a dollar, right, between the day I buy it and the day I spend it, I don't have to pay for that fluctuation in the value of the dollar uh, in terms of like the movement in prices. So for whatever reason, with gasoline, right, let's say I get paid a hundred dollars, right, and I go and I 
fill up my tank. I've got a big truck. It cost me a hundred bucks to fill up the tank today. Then graciously, Vladimir Putin decides to cut gas prices as he's done recently after his price hike. And so Vladimir Putin cuts gas prices too. This is a joke for anyone who's listening, but Vladimir Putin uh, gives us the Putin price cut. And he says, listen, I'm going to cut gas prices now to $50 to fill up your tank. I don't suddenly have to go and you know, I get paid another $100 and I go spend it on gas. I don't have, the dollar has gone up relative to the gasoline, but I don't have to go and pay a tax based on the gain, right? So basically dollars are standard everywhere. There's no tax payable uh, when I dispose of them and I earn money on them, right? So that's the significance of legal tender here in the United States. There's only one body competent to, to set the legal tender of the United States, and that's the Congress of the United States. And um, so far, the, the thought that they would do that with Bitcoin and essentially make it tax exempt is uh, remote. I think that's a very remote possibility. But that would be the one time where the designation of Bitcoin as legal tender would have uh, legal consequences. Yeah. Is there is there a scenario in which you see Bitcoin becoming ubiquitous, people using it? Because that's what I think about, like value for value stuff. Like people, you can see on my wallet right now, like people are sending me every minute, like of every day. Like so the nature of Bitcoin, the Lightning Network specifically, mm-hmm. I think does does it create a scenario which is like almost too hard to enforce all this stuff? It is. It is essentially um, not if you hire not if you hire eighty seven thousand IRS agents. Um, yeah, but, so, so I'm getting, but it's like a tenth of a penny. I'm getting like every minute of every day. That's awesome. Like that's that's awesome. Like, but like so in I think in practice, it's it's not really the people who are accumulating Bitcoin now, it's not going to be so relevant as later on because the Bitcoin that's being accumulated now is going to be worth a lot later on, right? So if you're getting a 10th of a penny now, great. Like keep, keep stacking. That's all I got to say. Um, it just keeps stacking and stacking and stacking. And eventually you'll, you'll get to Valhalla. Um, what I would say is that, um, what would I say? I, I would say that it's probably going to, this is an issue which is going to have to be addressed later on when Bitcoin is more widely used for day-to-day transactions. And just given where we are with layer two, um, there's no need, laws is, is, a, is a trailing indicator, not a leading indicator, right? So legislative changes to address changes in human behavior tend to follow the actual changes in human behavior. The reason they do this is because you don't want to overbuild a legal system which doesn't actually address, you know, human reality, right? And so common law in particular tends to trail behind. Um, so that essentially layer two is not big enough yet for any of these issues to become salient and important for the revenue to address. At the point where you have 100 million Americans transacting on Lightning Daily, we will get law reform, right? Which says, listen, these transactions are no longer are de minimis and we're not going to... There, there will essentially be... My guess is they'll they'll do a carve out. Well, they'll say any transaction under six hundred or a thousand dollars isn't taxable, or something like that, uh, or in aggregate, right, isn't taxable. And then as crypto adoption grows, then you might move towards something like currency normalization. Uh, but we're nowhere. I mean, Lightning has what a million users, maybe a couple million tops. Um, so like ab- absolute tops. I don't even know how many nodes there are. I need to look it up. But like it's it's growing, right? But it's still very small. It's like where Bitcoin was in 2014. So that 
that's, I think, needs to catch up. I think it'll catch up a lot more quickly than Bitcoin has gotten to where it is. I think you're probably looking at a very compressed timescale compared to Bitcoin itself because Bitcoin was the, was the leader. But um, it still needs to grow into that and then create the legal problem, which then the laws will be drafted to address. Uh, so, yeah, people don't, legislators aren't going to write laws for problems that haven't yet become problems. Uh, it's, they'll do, some legislators do do that. And when they do, they look stupid. Um, so, for example, the Wyoming Dow law is one such law. Uh, and uh, <laughs> like we can go into that another time, but it's a stupid law that, that solves a non-problem and nobody's using it. So, like, they tried to be creative and get ahead of the curve and they wound up embarrassing themselves. So, um, yeah, that, like, that's, that, that's kind of my view on that is that eventually, you know, the laws will catch up, but just it, we have to wait for the, the tech to make it a big enough problem that the legislators pay attention to it. Yeah, no, it is crazy. The, the breakneck pace of, of development of the lighting network, I think, yeah, you said a million people, it's 1% of the way to a hundred million. I think the stuff I'm seeing on the horizon is from the I mean, it's podcasting 2.0 alone. Like, uh, you're beginning to see podcasters that have no idea or they're not really interested in Bitcoin at all begin to push their users onto these podcasting 2.0 apps so that they can use, yep. they can accumulate money in a different way. And yep. I think f- there's a phenomenon going around where people are beginning to realize the, the benefits and the unique value prop and utility provided by the Bitcoin stack that it's beginning to bleed into popular culture, which is very interesting to see. Yeah, I concur. It, it's, I think it'll, I think lightning is going to be enormous. Um, yeah, there are a lot of people who give it a lot of flack for uh, this and that shortcoming, but like I've seen all those arguments before I, I made them once about Bitcoin itself and they proved to be wrong. So the, the tech is growing and in complexity and capability sufficiently quickly that, um, that I, I think it's a matter it's a matter of time before stuff like lightning is in everyday use. Are lightning node operators going to need to get uh, money transfer licenses? <laughs> in my in my estimation, no. But uh, you know, it depends. Let's see what the treasury does. They may turn around. And, yeah, let, we'll have to see. But uh, no, my my hunch is no. All right, good. Because I don't want to do that. <laughs> your mileage may vary this is not legal advice but that's just my hunch so. <laughs> well i mean i had these uh on the calendar for an hour and a half we've gone over i want to respect your time on this beautiful friday yeah uh, no i'm gonna i think i'm gonna take the dog for a walk and uh i think that's uh, a wonderful way to spend the afternoon so might do that but uh hey good talking to you as always it's always a pleasure well uh we'll have to do it again at some point in the future and uh yeah, I mean, very interesting times we find ourselves in, freaks. Uh, very happy that we were able to get Preston on to to bring some clarity to the legal side of things in the in the Bitcoin world. Appreciate you yeah. doing. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much. It's not a dog either. It's a marmot in a dog suit. This, just- yeah, this is, yeah, that's that's definitely definitely not a dog. That's a that's a marmot that looks like a dog. Yes. Okay. Well, go enjoy your marmot walk. I'll. Uh, I'll talk to you. Uh, I'll see you on the internet. Awesome. See you on Twitter in like two minutes. Yeah. Peace and love, freaks. Okay. Later.